0: Welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett. I'm Max Frost. And today we're joined by Tim Carney. He's a visiting fellow here at AEI and the commentary editor at the Washington Examiner. And Tim is the author of a new book, Alienated America, Why Some Places
1: Thrive While Others Collapse. And we talked to him today about the book, the themes in it, and his experiences traveling across a lot of the kind of more or less depressed places across the country. And we talked to him about... The themes of the book, yeah, but also just what he saw and his firsthand experiences in these
0: communities. Yeah, it's a a great combination, the book, kind of between on the ground shoe leather reporting, but also just uh, sociological research, a lot of stuff that you you might read about in more white paper-like places. And Tim does a great job of kind of breaking it down and showing why it's relevant and then combining that with his on the ground reporting.
1: Yeah, and he ties it a bit into the elections and society more broadly, why we should be concerned about the trends in these places. Um, And what is happening in the really
0: depressed places we see in the United States what's happening there and why Yeah, he can obviously do a great much better job though talking about it the weekend. So without further ado. Here's Tim Carney Tim, thank you for coming on banter today. Thanks for having me So I've never written a book But I've heard authors like it when you asked them what their book is about rather than just try to
2: summarize it yourself (laughs) So why don't you tell us what is your book about? It's about the growing perception that the American dream is dead, and I tried to figure out what that was from, whether it was a purely economic story, as a lot of people painted, or, as Hillary Clinton would say, whether it's sort of about the deplorables, just not being able to get with the changing times. And when I went to places where the American dream seemed dead and places where it was very much alive... What the story I saw was slightly different than I expected. It was that the strong places were characterized by strong institutions of civil society, which is to say neighborhoods, churches, uh, strong public schools, little leagues, Boy Scouts, bowling leagues, and that the the struggling places, it wasn't just work, worse economics. Economics wasn't the main determining factor about outcomes such as out of wedlock birth and dropping out of high school and drug abuse, the main difference between the places that were thriving and the places that were collapsing was whether you had those strong institutions. And so the suffering of the working class in America is alienation, is detachment from the things that connect us to other, provide a safety net, and provide a sense of purpose. And obviously
1: the whole book kind
2: of answers this question, but in a nutshell, what has caused this collapse in communities? What is causing this alienation? So there, there's a handful of factors. An obvious one is technology changes the way people interact. And yes, modern technology, smartphones, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you young people use, InstaFish, <laughs> and, or SlapFish, I guess is what it is. Um, wolf, uh, the, wolf <laughs> the Yo app sadly died. Oh. Um, but also just things like... Nice cars, attached garage, bigger houses, a TV with 900 channels. Make it easier to get what you think you need from life without interacting a ton. Then there's also the sort of what seem like opposites, but I think they're twin traits of over-centralization and hyper-individualism. So this is channeling Alexis de Tocqueville. I think I quote Yuval Levin saying they're two sides of the same coin, that government centralizes and drives private institutions out of the public square and into irrelevance. Our attention centralizes on things like just the national politics to turn away from the politics of everyday life. But also, th- a lot of things just allow us to s- try to plan our whole lives without being kind of stuck to anything, to move in and out in a transactional way. Just like you're transactional as to what CVS you stop at to get your cough medicine. A lot of people are transactional even if they're religious with their churches. They're transactional in their jobs. They're transactional in all sorts of things without really getting stuck in anything. So centralization, hyper individualism, and modern technology have have dragged us away from institutions, but that retreat from connectivity is a lot more acute in the working class.
0: Yeah. So you quote uh, the line from President Trump often. Sadly, the American Dream is dead. If you listen to him tell the story in his inaugural address, which people named, or maybe a speechwriter named, American Carnage, for him, no, no relation to me. No relation yes. to you. <laughs> um, yeah, I just got that. Carnage, yes. Carnage. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you listen to him tell the story, a lot of it is. Bad trade policies, bad immigration policies came in and devastated the working class, and this is why their communities are suffering. Is that mainly true? That's,
2: is that is largely true. Well, A, oversimplifying the economics, and B, skipping a step. So chapters two through five of Alienated America sort of tell a story of exactly that. The It starts in 1955 outside of Pittsburgh, the Manessin Steel Plant out there, the Pittsburgh Steel Company. And how good things were. And if you were a white working class guy living in and PA, life was good. More competition comes in for the steel uh, industry from Europe. Then later you get, you know, Mexico and eventually China. And the factory shuts down. Now in so much of the Monongahela Valley there, life really is collapsed. But the first thing he misses is, A, protectionism and preventing foreign trade would have impoverished the country and also not even really saved the jobs. But the most important problem with the purely economic account here is that it skips a step. It leaves out that the reason that Fayette County, Pennsylvania, which I, I visited for the book, the reason that's in shambles isn't just at the factory close. It's that after the factory close, there wasn't sufficient institutions of civil society, wasn't sufficient networks, wasn't sufficient social capital to keep things afloat. So I compare... Fayette County to Pittsburgh, which is doing really well now. Fayette County is not doing well now. They both were hit by the same storm. But in Pittsburgh, there was a shelter of a dozen neighborhoods where there's the Italian Catholic neighborhood and Squirrel Hill, the Jewish neighborhood. There's all these institutions planted by the industrialists. There are parks, schools, museums, concert halls. And that those institutions allowed people to keep flourishing, even in a diminished way during an economic downturn while there's a, the, there were fewer institutions in the rural places, maybe one Protestant church, one Catholic church. The Some people leave after the factory shuts down. People stop going to the church, so they consolidate parishes, which means, realistically, most people stop going to church. The diner ends up closing down. And then the people who are left don't have the hubs that connect them to another. So Trump's account, trade and immigration matter, and I pay attention to how they matter. And I think too many conservatives try to diminish their importance because... They know that trade and immigration on net are good for the whole U.S., but what I'm pointing out is that it's not just a small economic cost to a lot of the working class. It's a real cultural catastrophe.
1: Well, yeah, one thing, I enjoyed the book a lot, and I liked how you went to these different towns, Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Um, You talked about Williston, North Dakota, a booming, fracking town there, and uh, there's a quote here. You said, bad economics can help kill a community, but good economics cannot alone rebuild one. Um, talking about just because money was coming in here and just because people are moving there for jobs, what we think of as you know a robust community did not exist, so can you go into that a bit more
2: that 's right and the uh, the church on the cover of Alienated America is uh, a shuttered church right outside of Williston, which was just a fabulous uh, coincidence. I think the publishers sort of did an image search for uh, closed-down rural church, and they came up with one that was right outside. But yeah, Williston is a fracking town in North Dakota, and it had been kind of nothing before the, it became the center of the shale boom there in the, the, you know, shortly before 2010. And when I went out and visited in, in 2011, I experienced sort of how Wild West it was. So guys, the oil company puts you up in these man camps, which kind of were like awesome. You were you had your own dorm room. There's this giant big screen TV in there. And then the, the sort of community hall is like a triple wide trailer with pool tables, ping pong tables, foosball, all you can eat. More or less fast food 24 7. Sounds like AEI a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With more French fries and no women. Um, <laughs> but there were women who lived in Williston and lived in other fracking towns like um, in Texas and Pennsylvania. And what this one study by Melissa Carney, also no relation, she works at Brookings, she found, she thought that an influx of money, because these guys are getting paid $18 an hour plus room and board, an influx of money would bump these people from sort of lower working class up to middle class, and then have some upward effect on marriage rates. But it didn't. The women in these towns were no more likely to get married when the wages went up than they were when the wages were way down. And so that's an indication that a purely economic model doesn't work. I expect now, so her study's a few years old. My visit to Williston was eight years ago. I expect that now we're starting to see it can a community can grow up if there's Resources are necessary, money's necessary, but it takes a while. It's not enough. It's not the switch. You can't skip the step of the community institutions. Yeah, we haven't really covered this yet, but it's hugely
0: important to your book. What is the role of marriage in all this? You talk about how I think in the upper, more upper middle class communities, marriage is still pretty much just as popular as before, but what's happening in the working
2: class? Yeah, so the, for the, I tried to write this book for conservative and liberal and in between audiences, and I've been lucky. I got on both Morning Joe and Tucker Carlson, and both those hits went pretty well. Not every book can do that. But for the conservative audience, one of the messages I'm trying to get out there is to disabuse them of what I call the Lena Dunham fallacy, which is a belief that, you look at the numbers, fewer people are getting married, Americans are having fewer kids, in some parts of the country, out of wedlock birth are on the rise. And to say, oh, well, this is about women graduating from Wesleyan with, you know, believing a fish a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle and, and uh, living either polyamorous lives in apartments in Bushwick or <laughs> wh- whatever it is they're doing. But that's statistically insignificant. Like all of those people are like the actresses who are writing those television shows. <laughs> statistically... People who graduate from college, including the liberal elites, are getting married. You know, probably there's a dozen AI scholars who could talk about this better than I can, but I think it's important to establish that uh, at age 40, over two-thirds of women with college degrees are married. So that's down from 1962, say. But if you look at women who never went to college, it's down below 50 percent of them are married at age 40. So there's a delay in marriage among the elites. There's a retreat from marriage and a rise in divorce among the working class. And to me, that's both a symptom and a cause of the alienation problem that I discussed through the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, kind kind of related. I know you went to all these different towns and you talked to a lot of people.
2: I'm guessing were mostly people older that you spoke to? I, I spoke to uh, people running a gamut, but okay. why were you going with it? Well,
1: I'm, I'm, I mean, just like a lot of the ways that you describe, you know, people kind of detached from community, yep. people, you know, not believing in marriage, less religious. That sounds like a lot of young urban people. I mean, you know, like a, like I'm not going to speak for myself, but you know, for a lot, a lot of people that we know and
2: yep. in our society, what do you what do you see there in among the youth? Yeah. So there is a first of all, there is the same class divide. Uh, teenagers, a new survey just came out. Teenagers. Who are are not that likely to say that marriage is part of their goal. It's, it's dropping off, but it's uneven across the classes, where it's about fifty percent of teenagers raised in upper income families above seventy five thousand say that they uh, that marriage and family is important to them, and down below thirty percent of those in lower income families below thirty thirty five thousand or so say that marriage and family is important to them. But I do see. Definitely across the entire... And so that's teenagers. But if you jump ahead to 20-somethings and millennials, yeah, you do see this this drop-off. And I think it's got to do with a deinstitutionalization and a lack of connection to things. Now, first of all, institutions and things that we joined and belonged to used to be partly how we met our wives. There was no dating app when I was a kid. And there's something very different about it. The things we did to try to meet somebody who we might date or marry were fun in and of themselves. (laughs) It wasn't slogging through and and swiping. It was going to a party. It was was joining a club. So, there's that front. And then on the other front that I talk about more in the book is the infrastructure that supports family life is belonging to things. So, I'm a Catholic. I never belonged to a parish until I got married. And we Catholics, it's great. It's just like there's a five o'clock uh, vigil mass at, uh, at this church, a six o'clock one church uh, mass every hour of the day. You can even go to Georgetown University at 11 p.m. to catch the last chance mass. So you're not attached to anything. But you do, if you sort of grow up, as I did in sort of a upper middle class environment, you sort of know that those things are out there, and then you plug into them when the time comes. And belonging to things, which sort of people do less and less every year, is crucial to raising families. So if there's a, a pull away from seeing the desirability of family formation, what I argue is that that is because there doesn't seem to the world doesn't seem to be built for families in the way that it more obviously was two generations ago, and even was a little more clear when I was growing up, you know, when I was in high school 30 years ago.
0: Yeah, let's just make this a little more tangible, I guess, for our listeners. I mean, I've read you've of in, and we hear Charles Murray talk about this type of thing, institutions, civil society, Edmund, mm-hmm. Edmund Burke, they're all eroding. What does that actually mean in practice, though? I think in the preface of your book, you go into an example of you've got this dense web of connections, where it, in the alienated portion of America, they maybe don't. Can you just say what, in practice, you actually mean by this civil society?
2: Yeah. So the the type of organizations, if you've uh, if you've read Bowling Alone, you know they talk about bowling leagues. There's clubs you belong to. There, I always use a swim club throughout the book. Also, a parish is one of the uh, most important things. So, the preface starts with my. My daughter, who is one, ending up in the hospital with a respiratory virus. And it's she has to go to children's hospital to get heavy enough oxygen. And that's a 40-minute drive from our house. So our life is totally upended. And we still have, I have my two jobs, the examiner in here. We have six kids, five other kids. So five of them are going to school. And we're trying to make life work. And we just got this absurd over. Abundance of help. I, the Bible passage I quote in here is My cup runneth over. There were people I had to apologize to. Sorry I didn't respond to your offer to help. I, w- I was too, you know, life was too crazy. But my kids just told me when my son, who read this preface, said, Do you know that kids were envying me at school because our lunch was so good that week? <laughs> Somebody brought a whole platter of corner bakery. Uh, and so the sandwiches are just these big things with tons of meat. So as I I wrote about myself sitting in the in the pediatric intensive care unit and I write as I thought about each person or couple who helped us or wrote or called I noticed these weren't simple bilateral relationships in almost every case there was an institution that linked us again this wasn't how we thought of our friends generally they were just our friends but whenever I described them to others to whenever I described others the help we got I found myself speaking of the couple from our parish or the family from our pool. Some help came from parents at the same boys' school where all the sons go. Others were my college classmates. Others were my work colleagues at the examiner, the American Enterprise Institute. Parents of the kids I'd coached in basketball helped. The woman who sent the corner bakery feast is my wife's in my wife's book club and attends the same Virginia parish as her parents. The Grubhub gift card again came from an organization whose board I had sat on. Our dense and broad network of friends, which had become a short term safety net. It wasn't merely a network of friends. It was a network of organizations, companies, churches, schools, and clubs. The hubs that bound us to these friends are what we call, quote, institutions of civil society. Sociologists might say that during those five days, we were drawing on our deep reserves of, quote, social capital. So this was me trying to put into real life what you read about in your Charles Murray and your and your Robert Putnam. Yeah. And in Alienated America,
0: these... Swim teams, book clubs, churches—are these these are all just kind of withering away? The,
2: exactly that the the social capital. At one point, I compare, um, I, I look at counties in Iowa that have very similar economic and demographic profiles, but very different sort of scores on. We have measures of social capital on a county level that are very imperfect, but if you look at here's a county where all the churches are closing down the population and the per capita income are still okay and compared to one where all the churches are robust and open and there's other you'll find other institutions more volunteering more charitable giving in that first one you see all the outcomes are better if the inputs are how many churches how much charitable giving how many other institutions the outputs are Uh, low teen pregnancy rate, high high school graduation, and uh, low drug use and all that. And so, yeah, the the plague of the working class in middle America is that they don't have as much access to these institutions because they don't exist or they're not as strong where they are.
1: Now, to play devil's advocate a little bit here, what about Northern Europe? Because I know you talk a little bit about the labor organizations there, which I thought was interesting. I never heard of that. But there you have, you know, highly secular society. I think in some countries, most people don't get married anymore. At least most people don't have children when they're married. Um, did, did your research look at that at all?
2: I, I did a little. And maybe I need to ask AI to put me and my wife and my six kids up in, in <laughs> Norway for a year. And I can I can write alienated Norway question <laughs> One thing is... That it's it's a good example of places of they do have uh, again a lot of strong local institutions because what I'm talking about here is a very a very local thing. Um, they also have it's a different story than America. They're much more homogenous And what America is, what I try to paint here, not a melting pot. But a patchwork of so many different little platoons. Just thinking about Pittsburgh, how what side of this hill you're on um, can predict whether you're Italian or Jewish or Protestant or a hipster or what. Like there's the such strong little uh, neighborhoods. That's I think a very American uh, thing, and so that allows for the pluralism and yet a solidarity, because there's a solidarity on a local level and then a bigger circle that may have a shallower sense of common purpose, but is still there, and then you go out to the city level, etc. And that in a lot of Northern Europe there's less uh, diversity. And if you look at places like Denmark, they don't do a very good job of assimilating. And America has all sorts of problems with assimilating, and we should talk about them. But we do it eventually. We, we do it a lot better in part because there's a peace, social peace created by more little pockets where different types of people uh, can thrive. So my answer to sort of the – I had – the first obnoxious Twitter comment I got when my book came out is somebody said, I just listened to a podcast of it. And if this guy should have just Googled Europe to, to get the alternative. Um, my answer is Europe doesn't try to do what we do, which is to take such a pluralistic, diverse society and have people of all stripes thrive here.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean, some of the places with the highest social capital in your book are Dutch. And I, yes. and I assume Nordics are a similar type. Maybe there's just something about being Dutch
2: and Nordic. Well, <laughs> that's what I thought at first when I was seeing these election results pouring in. I was like, his worst county, Trump's worst county in Iowa was Sioux County, his worst, which is... Dutch. His worst counties in uh, Michigan were all in these Western, where Holland, Michigan is. And there's Hope and Calvin College, where it's like this fierce clash between these two different Dutch Reformed uh, colleges. And then sure enough, Oostburg, Wisconsin, which is the, the village I have in chapter one, he also bombed in. So before I kind of figured out it had to do with church, I was just thinking there's something about the Dutch blood. But I went to our AEI colleague, Stan Voiger, and uh, he's he's from the Netherlands. Was he the Twitter troll? Because he chirps a lot. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, no, Stan was incredibly helpful on this book in a lot of ways. He introduced me to a lot of the Dutch people. But he also <laughs> said, the Dutch and Netherlands are all a bunch of uh, secular liberals. So they're not the people you're talking about. The Dutch in Michigan and Oosberg, they're, they're a very different type. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. So you keep coming. I mean, the The cover has a church on it. You
0: keep coming back to church in this conversation. Is there something about church per se, or, I mean, could a T-ball league kind of serve the same purpose in bringing people together?
2: A lot of the same purpose can be served by perfectly secular institutions, um, which is you can be joined together, pursuing a joint higher purpose without there needing to be a religious undertone or with there being an ecumenical undertone. Um, a lot of volunteer organizations are exactly that. The strongest veterans organizations today are exactly that. Um, it's about realizing that when you leave the military and you don't have a strong sense of purpose, it can be alienating. And so we're going to have you do relief programs and that sort of thing. And being veterans organizations, they stay away from religion, um, and they but they give you a joint higher purpose where you're working together. I think that ultimately they can't. They will be missing some of what uh, a church and a religious institution will be missing, because I think that real love of one's neighbor in a deep and abiding way for humans, because we're such imperfect creatures, requires sort of refreshing that with an idea of God's love for oneself. But if we're just to set aside my own sort of theological uh, and observations and thoughts on human nature. If we're just to look at the fact of what America is and always has been, the middle class places that do well are places with church. The core institution of civil society for the middle class and the working class has always been the church. Robert Putnam says this in Bowling Alone, 50% of all civic activity originates from church. And Putnam, just for the listeners, is a liberal, right? He's not yes. like a... yeah. No, and yeah, he's a liberal. He only dedicates one chapter to religion, even though it's 50%. He later wrote a book with a Mormon at Georgetown University named David Campbell called American Grace, which lays out, and so you'll see that book end up in my, my footnotes a lot. But the key there is religious attendance. So we don't want to abstract on religion too much it's belonging to a congregation is the thing that on the sociological front provides a good outcomes. And again, I'm a catholic so I think you have to go to church. It's a, it's a sin if you intentionally skip church. But I don't think I'm speaking just from that perspective when I say that belonging to and attending frequently is the way the mechanism through which religion delivers the good sociological outcomes.
0: Yeah, one more thing So I'm a Catholic too, but and I'm I hear this from my friends right now, especially with the ongoing scandals in the church. I yep. feel like a lot of people that are not Catholic are going to think why should we strengthen this institution right now that is having all these issues? Is that? I'm sure that's an objection you hear a lot as well.
2: Yeah, and one of the things that I, I say when I talk about this, because um, I, in in my columns and other things, have been outspoken about the utter failures of, um, specifically, my, our own archdiocese our, here in Washington, and our whatever you call them now, or, or not quite Archbishop Whirl. Um, his failures here and in the Pittsburgh Diocese. One of the extra victims of this, or a million of the extra victims, are the people who stop going to church because they just see it as a corrupt institution, and there is a corruption there. And I found myself at my neighborhood pub, which doesn't end up getting named in alienated America. I should count how many pubs are in here. But I wrote a significant portion of it at the stained glass pub, and I, I had to show a copy to the bartender when I finished, because I'm sure there's a thousand people who sit at the end of a bar, quote, writing a book. <laughs> but I actually was. But I, at one point when I said it was about church, a, a neighbor said, not, not somebody I knew well at all, he said, I stopped going to church in two thousand and four, and he had this heartfelt discussion of how he you know the the abuse scandal affected him and i didn 't have a good counter argument to him because and so that's an extra victim of when churches lose their way and abuse their power. but what I would say is this: if you don't uh, you don't sort of trust any of my moral appeals. The numbers show that people who attend church and their children have better outcomes. But an important thing to remember is, I talked about the people in whose parish shuts down outside of Pittsburgh, and then they stop going to church. But the flip side of that is that the way we encounter church, religious worship, is in a very local way. So we're in a very universal church, there's Rome, there's mass, every day. every church in America um, is doing the same readings at mass on any given Sunday, the the prayers we're saying, even if they're in a thousand different languages, are the same. But we still are experiencing and encountering it on a human level. And that's one thing that throughout alienated America. I try to drive through that we think we live in the abstract or in the national and the global, but we we live locally and without being able to help it. So for me, having a a strong parish, having a pastor who is basically willing to very publicly criticize the archbishop and the, and the rest of the hierarchy for its mismanagement of it, um, that made it seem that I wasn't staying attached to this corroded institution... I stopped giving money to the archdiocese for yeah. sure, but that for me, the church manifested itself as a building and a congregation on the corner of Kent Mill Road in Arcola in Silver Spring. And that, that sort of can be the – while it can be a negative that people then stop going if that parish closes, it can be a positive in that this can be an island of sanity and holiness when there's all the rest of the problems. Yeah. yeah so get, I know you talk – constantly throughout the book
1: about the local you know this is a matter this is a local matter there's something you wrote where you talked about america it's a land of opportunity split into lands of hopelessness and opportunity to talk about the policies that we should be implementing regardless Mm -hmm. are there places that you look local communities where certain policies have been taken or like concrete efforts have been made to kind of turn a place
2: around so one thing that does seem to matter and i don't have data on this but is uh, the physical shape of the built environment, the more walkable something is, the more the better it is for kids and for parents. The way I think about it is, if you don't have to drive your kids to a place, they're more likely to be able to do something fun, and they're less likely to be run over by a car. And that, that, that matters for parents. And then just for adults, uh, of all stripes, walking, bumping into your neighbors, it's why young people generally want to live downtown or in DC just across the river and in, in those neighborhoods in Arlington um, though some people m- move for but it's why it would be weird if you lived in my neighborhood that's sort of car centric if you didn't have kids it's i live in Clarendon and i'm looked down
0: upon all the time by the DC people uh,
2: so. by being out in the out in the country <laughs> across center. the do oh, get me started <laughs> um, but because you want to be able to walk places and bump into people is, is part of the, the fun of it. So that's uh, one thing. What doesn't seem to make a difference is spending more money on schools, because what makes strong public schools strong is the involvement of parents. So what the school policy that I think matters, and again, I haven't seen anybody conduct an experiment on it, though I'm sure the data is out there, is the more local control of schools. That can be your secular institution of civil society where people are joined together on a human level, pursuing a common higher purpose, is more local controls. Montgomery County, Maryland, we don't have local control. The county of one point something million sets uniform policies. So if they on Friday call a two hour delay because it's icy in the upper regions of Montgomery County down in Chevy Chase where there, or Silver Spring where there might be no snow at all, they're going to have a two hour delay because it's one size fits all. That's a small example of... How centralized it is and how little control we have over it, and the uh, so the, those are two of the big things that I would look for. But yeah, there is a study in there about how uh, spending per capita, how tax rates, how um, the, all of these things don't have a strong effect on upward mobility or anything like that. A lot, most of the things that have the strong effect are not subject to public policy. <laughs> And promoting marriage was a big Republican idea in the Bush era. Almost none of that worked. You want to promote marriage? You have to start working now to hope that you have a strong community in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm
0: sympathetic to all the federalist localism arguments, but isn't it, couldn't that also be a bit of an impediment? Aren't schools funded a lot by local taxes? So if you're already in a well-off area, your school's better. If you're not in a
2: well-off area, then you're not. Sure. Um, And I mean, but local control and local funding can be uh, two different things. But again, the money is secondary to the parental involvement, which puts you in a terrible catch 22, because in the, the weaker neighborhoods, there's going to be less parental involvement. The people who need the strongest public schools the most are the ones who get it the least in a lot of America, with exceptions of some parts of rural America with really strong community for one reason or another. And also blue-collar jobs are less flexible. There's less ability to be a PTA mom or PTA dad if you can't predict your shifts and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of pretty vicious catch-22s or vicious circles involved here. So – uh, how much how much time do we have left here? Do you know? Well, there. I mean, we
0: can go as long or short as we want. We're already a little over what we said we would be. But this uh, is. A but I've got to get
2: back to my my suburban uh, home and kids soon. That is true. All right. All right. So final question. <laughs> final question. Why are you not verified on Twitter? <laughs> By the time I tried to do it, they stopped doing it when the book was coming out. I was like, I should get verified on Twitter. Well, so here I am, an author again, going on like Morning Joe, and if somebody, and maybe it's not me. Maybe that's the real answer. Maybe well, somebody else is imp- impersonating. Well, I mean, some people like tell Twitter, "I don't want your blue check
0: mark." But then I look and like your new colleague, our former colleague at AEI, friend of mine, Grant. Grant Addison, Addison yes. He's
2: got a check mark. It's like if he has one, how do you not? And have one? Grant Addison is like a nobody, basically. Yeah, and he's got a blue check mark. That that should be. You should petition and say if you're gonna blue check mark Grant Addison, who's basically like a poor man's <laughs> Seth Mandel, then you should blue check mark Tim Carney.
1: Well, we yeah. have, we have our own blue uh, blue check request pending right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, blue. so if
2: you,
0: I mean, hopefully banter will be the the straw that breaks the back on Good. this, and you get a check mark, please get us check marks while you're there. All right. The book is called Alienated America by Timothy P. Carney. Please go out and buy it. And thank you for coming on Banter. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Tim has now left the building. Max, what'd you think about the interview?
1: I enjoyed it. I think that there's a couple ideas he raises that I think are the most interesting. One, this point they talked about with the fracking town in North Dakota, where just because a place is booming you don't necessarily see you know drastic improvement in community and the quality of life.
0: Yeah, the point he made about and you brought this up too. I mean economics can kill a community but it can't good economics alone can't bring it back, which is just a little harrowing to think about for what policymakers how they can possibly respond to this. But yeah, I thought that was a great conversation. I could have gone on talking to him for another hour if we if we had the time. So we'll have to have him back sometime in the future. Until then, if you're not already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are found. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star rating and review. As a reminder, you can always send feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'll be back with another episode next week, and we'll talk to you then. Oh, yeah, test. I sound okay. How do you sound? Test. <laughs> Test. Uh, Test quiz. Okay. Yeah, you're you're good. Kebab. I now really just want halal guys after that. Halal oh, guys but, are really good. I know. I haven't. I haven't got. It's been. I don't think I had it since like September. It's been a long time. Wow. I know.
2: Amazing you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's just do it.